One of the challenges of this time of year is reconciling the expectations of the season with the realities of life. The expectations are joy, cheer, family togetherness, space for enjoyment. Those are great things, and sometimes they do come. The expectations sometimes do match, right? Sometimes kids wake up to the presence that you expect. Sometimes you don't, but sometimes you do. Parents sometimes get time off this time of year. They get peace, and sometimes there is little family drama. But other times, maybe more regularly, expectations don't match reality. Family drama ramps up. Your in-laws who come to visit aren't that chill. I mean, wouldn't our in-laws ever chill? Your relaxing vacation that you anticipate that you're gone on, is it become a wine fest because your kids just can't get it together? More tragically, sometimes depression sets in at a greater rate this time of year. Often, sadly, death enters the picture. As I had to walk with a number of families in our church who experienced death this past week. During this Advent season, we're learning from four different women who gave us Christmas. We started with Eve. We looked at Bathsheba, and today we're going to look at Ruth. Ruth is a story of a woman who experiences everyday life that's filled with deep tragedy and loss. Ruth may not seem like it at first, but I consider Ruth one of the great Christmas stories. It's a Christmas story because Matthew's genealogy connects us to this story, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, who we know is the father of David. The book of Ruth can be, if you sit down and read it even out loud, I did it this past week, you can read it in less than 30 minutes out loud. So I encourage you to get into this Christmas story this week for yourself, for your family, for your children. Introduce your children to the story of Ruth, because it is a great story of God and Christmas. I want to approach this story and kind of make some application for it. And I want to unpack this story, kind of trying to make a summary version of this entire book by looking at the four main characters. Naomi, uh, look at Ruth herself, look at Boaz, and then a baby. Naomi first. The story tells us uh, the context first. It's a very important, significant detail, the first few words. In the days when the judges ruled. We just so happened to finish the book of Judges, which is the book right before Ruth, uh, right before starting Advent. And if you were with us during that series, we know the time of Judges is a very dark time. The last words, the last verse of the book summarizes how bad things have gotten. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a very dark spiritual time. Not just for those who are outside the family of God, who do not know the living God. It's actually sad because it is dark within those who are supposed followers of the living God. His own people have run away, turned away from the living God. They've turned away from his covenant, his law. They choose to do whatever is right in their own eyes. There's no king. It's not necessarily a promotion of the monarchy. There is no worship of the living God who's supposed to reign as sovereign king in their life. The start of this story of Ruth is full of irony. You get it more so if you are familiar with Hebrew, but even in the English, I think the translation kind of carries some of this out. If 
This story was adapted into a limited TV series. The song that would be playing around in the introduction would be Alanis Morissette's Ironic. It is very ironic. The first person we meet is a man named Elimelech. And his name means Yahweh or the Lord is king. And you can feel the irony if you know judges, right? In the time when the judges ruled, there was a man named Elimelech, whose name means Yahweh is king, but it's a time when there is no king, even though his name means Yahweh is king. There's a famine in the land, and so they leave Bethlehem to go to Moab. In Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread, but there's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. And so they have to go to Moab, which is also ironic because Moab is a place where great evil occurs. They were the enemies of God's people. If you remember it back in Judges chapter 3, they attacked God's people. They abused God's people. And Elimelech is so desperate, or maybe even a little disobedient to the living Lord, and they have to leave, or they choose to leave. And things go from the bad situation to worse. His two sons end up marrying Moabite women, which may clue us into some of the families distanced from the Lord because they were not to intermarry with those who worshiped false gods, but they do. And tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. And then 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion die as well. We don't know why they die, but now Naomi takes center stage and she's pictured as a woman who's experienced significant tragedy. She's an empty woman. To get how tragic this is, we have to understand that the way that people get strength and significance and security is very different today than it is from their time. We understand the loss of family can be tragic, but it is incredibly devastating. This is not just a loss of family. This is a loss of status. This is loss of financial, economic security. This is a loss of social power. This is the tragic end in many ways. In our modern society, even if you were to lose family members, you still in many ways by yourself can gain status, economic security, social standing from your education, your skills, and even your money. But in those days, your security, your economic status, your relationships are based upon family. That's why the book of Matthew starts with the genealogy, because this is who Christ is. She's not just a widow. She's in the worst kind of situation because she's an older widow. She's not eligible to get married again. We don't know exactly how old she is, but she can't get married again or no one will want to marry her again. She doesn't have parents to go back to because she's of that age. And so she also then has no prospects of adult children giving her family to continue as well as her sons have died. And so she's lost both to her family because her parents are gone. She's lost her husband. She's lost her future. She is lost. She's empty. According to culture at this time, this is a total life devastation. She has nowhere to go, no one to help. Everything, social, economic, relational, psychological, is taken from her. And that's why when she gets back to Bethlehem, kind of a last resort now, at least kind of going around people who would maybe remember her, this is what she says when people start to recognize her at the end of chapter 1. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back 
empty. Why do you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Her name, Naomi, means pleasant or lovely. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter because that's how the Lord has dealt with me. I mean, she uses the name of the living God, Yahweh, here. So there is some understanding and some knowledge of the living God, but she doesn't feel his love. She feels like God is against her. Maybe you feel that conflict. Maybe that's exactly the conflict you feel right now because sometimes our theology doesn't result in doxology, doesn't result in worship. What we know doesn't translate to the heart and express itself in praise. And that's an experience of humanity, isn't it? As we live in this in-between time where Jesus has come and he promises to return, that is often where we will find ourselves, where the knowledge, the theology doesn't result in our praise and doxology of our life. How do you wrestle with that? If you're not in that moment now, it's a matter of time before you will find yourself in that moment. And if you're not in that moment, God has probably given you that peace so you can carry the burdens of someone who certainly will be in that moment in your sphere of relationships. How do you wrestle with that conflict between what you know and what you feel? That is the lifelong struggle of what it means to follow Christ. And this is given to us as a grace to show us that God understands this, that this is not uncommon. You are not alone if you are in this place. If you are sitting here or if you're listening to this, this is something that God understands, that God will enter into, that God loves you if you feel that way. You don't have to have it all worked out in your head in order to be right with God. Sometimes you can feel, you can even express honestly, as we looked at in the Psalms many times, you can feel, you can even say to God honestly and to others, it feels like God's against me. He's testifying against me. God's okay with that. And there's grace for that. The next person we see in this story is Ruth, whose namesake is this book. She is a Moabite woman. She's also devastated. Not quite like Naomi is, she does have a hope of a future, but she chooses to relinquish that, as we'll see. She still feels a deep commitment to Naomi. She and her sister-in-law, Orpah, uh, if you're reading that and you're wondering, is this where Oprah gets her name? Actually, Oprah's literal name is Orpah. It's just that people kept mixing it up, and Oprah just stuck, and so that's why she goes by Oprah, but her name is actually Orpah. Naomi goes back to Judah, and she tries to get her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab to their families because they'll have parents possibly to take care of them and they're young enough that they could get remarried. Now, Naomi knows her life is only going to get worse. She has no future, but she wants a future for her daughters-in-law. Later, this, this is also, she understands not just the fact that they have a future, she understands if they go to Israel, they will encounter racism and marginalization. Later, we see in the book, Boaz has to protect Ruth. In part, this is because it's a bad time. It's the time of the judges. But it's also because they were a hated ethnic group. If they went back with Naomi, they would possibly be victims of violence, which is why Boaz has to say, no one will touch you, because there's great ingrained racism there. Once you understand that context, it makes Ruth's famous statement that much more astounding. She has a potential. She has family back in Moab. She could get remarried, and she chooses to go with Naomi. Look what she says. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. And this is that famous verse, famous words. For you, 
For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She's saying, I'm all in. I'm committed to you because I'm ultimately committed to your God. Naomi mentioned earlier, go back to your gods, little g. And Naomi recognizes that the Lord will bless them, but this is a moment where Ruth is expressing the fact that she is a follower of the living God. She's committed to Naomi. She's committed to the Lord. She's committed to the circumstance of a depressed and very potentially dangerous future. She's committing to go back to being a hated, marginalized people. She's going to be a hated immigrant if she goes back with Naomi. She's committing to a woman who has no place, no land anymore, no future where she will be at risk. This is significant. Every act of immigration in history is always hard. An immigrant is someone who has to leave often family, leave home, leave familiarity, a culture, sometimes leave language behind and learn a whole new circumstance, language and people. Many people in this church are immigrants themselves or the children of immigrants. But usually, when immigration occurs in modern times, people take a risk because the risk of moving somewhere different has a chance of greater reward, better opportunity, better safety. That's why we immigrate. But here's Ruth choosing to be a hated immigrant, plunging her life to make it worse. Ruth is all in. And because of this, She's the key to Christmas. How did this happen? She says she wants Naomi's Lord, Yahweh. She doesn't want to return to her gods. This is an expression of her conversion. We don't know exactly when this happened. But this statement is a testimony of genuine faith in Yahweh. Part of it probably occurred because she saw Naomi's selfless love for Ruth. I mean, Naomi certainly wants and needs these daughters-in-law. She has no one else. But she releases them. And she saw this. And she saw this willingness to Naomi to go it alone. Even though she couldn't quite reconcile what she knows about the living God when she feels even Naomi's faith, as little and weak as it may be at this point, is speaking to Ruth. That's an encouragement too. Sometimes we feel like we can only share our faith or be witnesses or salt in life when things are really great in our life. Often God uses the brokenness of our life as we cling to him and nothing else as the light to the world. Maybe that's all you need to do is just hold on. She certainly has faith enough that she understands that she sends her daughters away even though she needs them that somehow God will be there. She prays that the Lord will deal kindly with Oprah. Op- I'm messing up her name too. Oprah, not Oprah, o- Orpah, right? And Ruth speaks to Ruth uniquely. And they make this trek. At the end of chapter one, we see this. And this is a, a small hint of hope, right? At the beginning of the book, it's the time of the judges, and there's a famine in the land at the end of 
chapter 1, what do you read as they go back to Bethlehem? It's during what time? Not the time of the judges as mentioned in the beginning. It's now the time of barley harvest. Bethlehem has once again become a house of bread. Those of you who love baking during the holidays, one of the things that's awesome about baking, right, is it fills your house with amazing smells. And I love to walk into people's homes who have recently baked because you smell that glorious gluten. I love gluten. It's amazing. It doesn't have the same smell if you're baking gluten-free bread. It just doesn't. But that smell, right? You, at the end of chapter 1 in Ruth, you smell hope. And introduced to another major character in this book, Boaz. Naomi and Ruth get back, and Ruth is the one who goes to work. She's the one supporting their family, their two-person family now. They're both impoverished, and so they have to resort to what it means to get a living or gain life as you're poor, which is gleaning in the fields. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, I love that word, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. God built into his law of Moses, the Torah, care for the poor because he knew that the poor would always be with them. And Leviticus commanded that as you were followers of God, when you harvested, you don't harvest everything. You leave the edges for the poor. You don't pick up everything you drop behind because you leave it behind so that those who don't have any other way can have life, can have bread. And it's also for the sojourner, the traveler. You care for those who are in deep need. This is why as the people of God in modern times, we ought to deeply care about the poor and those who are foreigners or refugees and immigrants because it has been since the beginning at the heart of God. I love how she just so happens, right? I love that word, happens to be in the field belonging to Boaz. You can read the humor there almost, the, the ir irony, right? It's not by chance. God is working in his sovereign care. Even when Naomi cannot reconcile her theology with her doxology, nothing is by accident. Boaz is introduced here. He's loaded. He's a rich guy. Uh, he's related. Uh, we don't know how many levels, but we know it's not immediate because there's someone closer, as we'll see. But he's related to Elimelech. He's well-to-do. He's also from the house of bread. Remember, Naomi and Ruth are impoverished, but for Ruth, there's a stigma. She's not only impoverished, a widow, she's from a foreign people that's hated. Boaz finds out that this woman has been working, uh, kind of gleaning at the edges, and he, he approaches her as he finds out her story, and he speaks to her so gently, daughter. It's a title, a, a, a label of gentleness and concern. When Jesus is touched 
in the crowd of people and the disciples like, and Jesus asks, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about who touched you? Like everyone's touching you. And then he reaches out to the woman who's been ostracized for her bleeding. He approaches her and calls her daughter. Ruth, who is a immigrant in a foreign place, who is a widow, who is impoverished, has this man approach her and say to her, daughter. Boaz acts kindly towards her. As we'll see throughout this, Boaz is an amazing young, or I don't know how young, but he's married, married, marriageable age. He's an amazing man, man that we would like our young men to become like. He acts kindly towards her. He offers her grain. He goes the extra mile. He even offers her protection. He invites her to share a meal with him. He's the kind of man, seriously, that I hope many of the young men in our church become like. I'm surprised not more people call their young sons Boaz. As I kind of made a, a case for why we shouldn't name people certain names in the book of Judges, I want to make a case equally for the fact that we should name more of our sons Boaz. Maybe we'll see more Boazes in the future. Boaz is amazed by Ruth. Because remember the story. This, we have to get into the details, the, the, the situational context here. She is taking, choosing to take a dead-end life. She is maritable age. She has family back in Moab. She could have a future. She chose to follow and care for her mother-in-law. She chose to become a racially marginalized woman. And, and Boaz is like, this woman has something about her. When she gets home, Ruth, she tells Naomi, and Naomi gets super excited because she knows Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. In the Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer is someone who has the right to buy back land to a family member who lost it. Naomi and Elimelech probably sold their land when they left to go to Moab. Now she's left without a place in her hometown. A kinsman redeemer is someone who could use their resources and generously buy it back for them. But it's not just a real estate transaction. That's hard enough to spend your resources, change up all the inheritance, your estate, in your family. But you would also have to marry to continue that family line, anyone who is eligible for marriage, to reestablish that family. Naomi knows Boaz is one of the few people left who could restore her family line. But why would he? Why would he spend his resources, disrupt his inheritance structure to his family? Why would this man enter into an interracial marriage with a hated immigrant? That's the context. Naomi asked Ruth to do something bold, to go to Boaz in the middle of the night, sit at his feet in a proposed marriage. This is a very bold act. As you read the text, if you read chapter 3 or 4, maybe it seems kind of like, sensual or tawdry. That's nothing of the sort. You have to understand this is a bold, certainly, act, but it's a very humbling act. Scripture often shows us women who don't fit into any kind of traditional or modern categories. You'll, you'll find many of the women in the, the family of Jesus are these very bold women who destroy some of the traditional categories but very womanly and very humble that destroy modern categories. It kind of puts together contradictory values and characteristics. She goes, sits at his feet, very boldly humbling herself and basically is proposing marriage to a man 
that she barely knows. Amazingly, Boaz, understanding he must know God's law, he's a kinsman redeemer, he takes up the challenge. That's the kind of man he is. He's looking to be generous and loving and merciful. He knows there's someone closer in the family line to Naomi, but if that person isn't willing to carry out the role, you're not compelled to do this, right? You don't have to do this. So he goes, he wants to talk to the other relative first, but if he doesn't, he commits to marrying Ruth. Even before Ruth leaves, I love this little detail, he doesn't leave her empty-handed. He asks her, where's the cloak that you have? And he measured out six measures of barley. This is a good dude. Go back to my future mother-in-law. Well, here you go. Here's a huge gift. It's an amazing guy. Boaz meets with the other relative. That man decides not to redeem her. Again, this is not a compulsory act. That man probably counts the cost. He's not willing to destroy his family estate. Maybe he has children who are going to fight and he doesn't want to deal with that. He doesn't want to risk his own family because that's what would happen. Not only do you have to spend your resources, you're reintroducing someone who will inherit from you and then you also have to marry them, so extending your family. But Boaz is a man who's seen the grace of the Lord in his life. He sees it in Naomi. He sees it in Ruth. He trusts the Lord and he carries out the role to be the Redeemer. He uses his financial, his social, his family capital in an amazing act of grace. Ruth and Boaz marry, and they have a child named Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. Naomi is the great-great-grandmother of King David. Because of Ruth's love to Naomi, her faithfulness to the Lord and her courage, both Naomi and Boaz are brought in and spliced into the line of Jesus. Ruth doesn't just bring Naomi back from emptiness in a general way. She brings her bitterness and restores her to the name above all names. It's an amazing story. That's why I encourage you, take some time for yourself to read this Read it to your family. Read it to your children. Three things I'd like to kind of get us to consider about this story. There's power in sacrificial love. That's the first thing. The way that the scriptures describe in Hebrew God's covenant love is a chesed love. And this is a never-stopping, loyal, committed, never-giving-up kind of love. It's a powerful love. You see it weaved if you look at the word kindness in, the, in this English translation that also is the word hesed, you see it weave throughout this story. If you're reading it this coming week, look for the words kindness or mercy or love. This is God's sacrificial love displayed. Naomi, remember, she's empty. She can't reconcile her knowledge of the living God with her feelings. Naomi still is loving enough to let Ruth go even though she needs her. That's love. Naomi doesn't need to get into a debate though, about Ruth's false gods. I, I love this. She, she knows that Moabite women worship false gods. She acknowledges that. She tells them to go back to her gods. She prays a blessing from the living God over them. And I love this. Ruth sees this sacrificial love of Naomi, and she commits herself. And then she is sacrificially loving Naomi. She's committing to be an outcast. Boaz sacrificially loves using all of his resources, his social capital, 
He redeems Ruth and indirectly restores Naomi. I love the line that Boaz uses when he meets Ruth. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's what's happening throughout this story. Naomi's freeing Ruth to go back. That's the act of love. Ruth is committing herself to Naomi. That's an act of Boaz is acting in sacrificial love. And when he meets Ruth for the first time, he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We don't often become farmers in our modern society in San Francisco. Although some of you actually probably, because in a city there is an ordinance. You can raise chickens in your backyard if you didn't know that. There's an ordinance. I think you're allowed up to three chickens in your backyard. And they start clucking. Your neighbor can't do anything about it. So if you want chickens, go get some chickens. But I read about a farmer once who had chickens in a barn, and the barn burned down. And as he went wading through his burned-down barn, he came across the body of a mother hen. And he moved the hen's carcass, only to discover as he moved it, two little chicks come out. They survived under the mother hen's wings. That's the Lord. You see it throughout this story. And that's how people experience and discover God. You know, one thing, I've been a pastor for a number of years now, and it's rare that I hear someone coming to salvation in the living God through sermons. It doesn't mean to diminish the preached word of God, but it's very rare that someone hears it and be immediately becomes a Christian. Now, God may use it in the whole journey of things, but it's rarely that moment, just hearing a sermon just makes it there. It's, it's almost never church programs. As good as some programs can be in the journey of discipleship, I've almost never heard of anyone coming to faith through a program. You know how people experience salvation? Coming along them and covering them with your wings. God uses all of these people in their sacrificial love to display his mercy and grace. That's how Ruth comes to faith. You know, everyone in this world is in need. As followers of Jesus, we know that they need to experience the living God who offers salvation, who, who is a God of love and mercy. And it's important that we understand how to communicate good news. We have to get the message right. But I think we sometimes forget that the message has to accompany a covering of wings. It's when people like Boaz cover people it's like when people like Naomi love their daughters-in-law enough to let them go even though she needs them. It's like Ruth who commits herself to a dead-end life. Christians, we have experienced that kind of covering, haven't we? We have come to faith because we have seen the love of God wrap us up, hold us, protect us from the fires around us. It's a reminder for us because we see and Paul described Jesus, the reason that we can be generous with our life, generous with our resources, generous with everything we are is because we see Jesus who became poor to make us rich. So the question I want you to consider is how can you be used by God to love someone in need? Who is experiencing famine where you can provide bread? Who's experiencing fires surrounding them where you can come along and surround them and cover them? Who can you love like that? Second 
thing we see from this story is God works in the everyday and broken. One of the amazing things about this book is that it's not that amazing. There are no miracles, no dreams, no visions. This is a book for people who experience everyday mundane life. And often in everyday mundane life, there's loss, tragedy, deep tragedy, loss of a husband, loss of children, loss of home, loss of jobs. But even without the miraculous, you still see embedded in this story, God at work. He's there. He's working out his glory. He's working out your good, even when you can't reconcile what you know to what you feel. Some of you are probably like Naomi in Moab. Your plan for life has completely failed. Your hopes have been dashed. Your life has turned to death. You can't see God at work. But this story, this Christmas story, is a reminder that there's hope. Ruth just happened, right, to be in the field of Boaz, really? No, God made that work. There are many happenings in your life where you can see God at work. God's promises are still at work. Cling to that promise. Cling to that hope. Last, consider that Ruth is a Christmas story. That's why the book also ends with a genealogy. And Matthew's book starts with a genealogy. It's a Christmas story because Ruth shoots us all the way to Matthew. Christmas is possible because of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. But consider Ruth for a moment. She encountered the living God, and she was forever changed. And she left her father's house. She left her home, she left everything she knew, she left her future, and she became an outsider. She became a suffering servant to Naomi. She was rejected. She became someone who's despised. Who does that sound like? Jesus, who left heaven. He left the Father and the Spirit and their eternal relationship. He came down. He left the feast of heaven. He took on poverty to be rejected, to be a suffering servant to mankind. He was despised. No one esteemed him, and he went to a cross to bring you home, to take those who are hungry and thirsty and bring you to a feast of bread, a place where you will never thirst again. Let's pray. Would you take a moment to respond, asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help make me full in Christ. Take my emptiness, take my burden, fill me. our prayers, Lord, our prayers for a carrying of burdens, the submission and verbalization of our emptiness, the pleas for faith to believe when our faith is weak. Father, thank you for answering these prayers by your Spirit. Strengthen us, revive us to your Son, fill us with your Spirit.